Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Good morning, Cornerstone. Thank you. That was cheerful. I like that. I, uh, give me just a second here. So obviously, I'm not Pastor Brian. Um, he is, uh, he's out of state at two different weddings this weekend. Uh, so I'm filling in. And just like I told first service, if you're new here or you don't know me, uh, my name is CJ. I'm the youth pastor. And I would just encourage you, whatever happens up here this morning, don't hold that against Cornerstone, okay? Uh, don't hold that against the church. Give it another try after this week. Uh, we are in Luke. So if you want to open up your Bibles just to give you guys a second to get there, um, you're going to want to be in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And also, I would say put a thumb in uh, Exodus 12. Okay, so those are the two big chunks we're going to be in. Uh, We are in a series going through the Gospel of Luke. And just like the tagline says, the point um, of this series, or actually the point of Luke in his reasoning for writing this Gospel is to give us confidence in the truth of what happened regarding Jesus, his life, and work. Uh, He was writing for his friend Theophilus, and uh, he was putting together an account, and he he was a historian and a doctor, and so he cares about details, he cares about what really happened and and the the facts of the matter, but at the same time, these aren't just cold facts. These aren't just um, historical dates, they are something that he wants us to uh, feel warmth from when we're reading, that there's spiritual significance that applies to our lives today regarding the truth of what happened in Jesus' life back then. So that's where we're at. We're going to cover a really large portion of Luke. So we're going to go from Luke 22.1 to 23.25. Okay, so basically a full chapter and a half-ish of Luke. And because of that, what I don't want you to do is think about this as uh, what we would typically do, where we are um, dissecting each verse and opening it up as much as we can. This is going to be more of a guided tour with application along the way, okay, for the next chapter and a half or so. Um, And that's kind of the point. We wanted to get this survey look at Luke so that then we could really slow down and study Acts. So both of those were written by Luke, and it makes sense to basically read Acts 1 before we read Acts 2, okay? That's what's happening. Acts picks up after Luke. So that is strategic. That's why we're doing a survey through this gospel right now. Um, So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to dive in, hit the ground running to get through this this morning, okay? Father, uh, thank you for an opportunity once again to gather as a a family, as a body of believers, and uh, open up your word Father, thank you um, for preserving these accounts for us. Thank you for uh, guiding the authors of the Gospels and for Luke as we're studying this book. As we are covering a lot of terrain this morning, I pray that that would not um, make us take your word any lighter or less seriously, but that we would just be focused on some of these big picture aspects coming out of it. I pray that my, my words uh, would be to your glory and for your people's good this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, I like storms generally. 
I know it's kind of a weird place to start, but hang with me for a second, okay? Uh, in general, I like California kind of storms. So growing up here, that's what I was used to. Uh, when I think of storms, I associate them with cold weather and like a fireplace and, you know, like I'm, I'm gonna get made fun of. I've already like accepted this, but coziness, right? Like I like feeling cozy, I like reading a book, I like coffee, I like cold weather, I like all that stuff. That's what I think of when I think of storms. I like the smell of rain, uh, I like watching it roll in, I like watching thunder and lightning, uh, mostly because I think about how out of control that seems and yet that is uh, under control for God, right? There's just this sense of awe that I get from that. Uh, when I moved to Kentucky, and my wife is from uh, Tennessee, when, I, when we moved there, I was not prepared for those kinds of storms. That's not the cozy kind of storm. That's the kind of storm that could like, throw your house into the next county. That's the kind of storms that we face out there. So there's, there's uh, tornado sirens going off, and the house is swaying, and I can hear beams creaking and moving because the wind is so intense, and my wife is watching Netflix. And she's just like, yeah, this is what happens during summer. It's hot. I go outside and there's like hot water falling on me and I don't understand that. So I'm like preparing to evacuate while she's watching Netflix. And the friends that we made there that are used to this stuff, they're like, absolutely do not leave your house right now. I was going to like try and drive and outrun the storm. That was my plan to get away from this scenario. So I don't like those kinds of storms, but I do like the California kinds of storms when you can kind of see them on the horizon and stuff like that. Well, to summarize, uh, leading up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, there has been a storm brewing around Jesus. There's been evil men plotting and Satan working behind the scenes, and he has seen this begin to start swirling around him. It's been on the horizon for a while. He could see the lightning flashes, and he could hear the thunder cracking off in the distance, and now it's here. It's about to make landfall in the life of Jesus and yet he stayed the course, knowing that that storm was coming, knowing that he was going to the cross. He didn't try to evacuate. He didn't try to outrun the storm. He stayed and let the storm hit. And the chapters that we're going to be in this morning are really the moments where that storm crashes into his life. It's finally here. And now we're just hours before his death on the cross. So... The tone is somber. The tone is uh, sobering. And through the next few chapters, uh, I think two things really stand out. They really create a contrast between each other. The one is this atrocity that is sin. And we know that Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and he pays for sin. But even leading up to that, it's just saturated in this filthy sin that we see in so many different scenarios and interactions that he has leading up to that cross. It's just everywhere. It's pervasive. And then contrasted against that is this beauty that is the faithfulness of Jesus. So while that horrendous storm is coming and, and hitting him and crashing, uh, he is faithful. And he stays. And he doesn't leave because he is the good shepherd to his people. So like I said, I'm going to be doing some summarizing in certain places. And then I'm going to be slowing down in some places so that we can cover this ground this morning. So right off the bat, we're met with this sad appearance of sin. 22, 1 through 6, um, Judas is putting together this plan to betray Jesus. And it's horrible. Judas is a close friend of his. Um, he's working this out. Really, it's between Judas, Satan, and the evil men that are supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel. 
They put together this plan that ultimately will result in the death of the Son of God. And we'll, we'll interact with this paradox throughout the rest of the, our time together this morning where um, men's plans to destroy Jesus are um, evil and wicked, and yet God's plan to send him to the cross is loving and just and faithful. And these two things are simultaneous as we go through. But one little bit of application from Judas uh, that I felt was important was that the proximity that we find ourselves to Jesus, like how close we are to a, a Bible, right? Or how often we attend a church or how often we're in a small group around other Christians, the proximity that we find ourselves to these things does not determine our salvation. It's the thing that we place our faith in that determines our salvation. So faith in Jesus saves us, not proximity to Jesus or churchy stuff, right? And that is laid out so clearly for us in the life of Judas. He was right there. He ate at the table. Judas probably preached sermons. Judas probably cast out demons. Judas went on missionary trips and journeys, and Judas is the one to betray Jesus. So being physically close or in proximity to Jesus or churchy things does not necessarily equal salvation. 7 through 23 of 22, we start to get into this uh, passage talking about the Passover. And to really grasp the significance of the imagery here, this is why I needed you to put that thumb in Exodus 12, okay? So we're going we're gonna to read that in just a second. But um, this Jesus, he's the Messiah that the people had been anticipating for centuries, starting back in Exodus. And what he's about to accomplish was foreshadowed in Exodus 12, 1 through 14. And to give a little bit of context to that chapter in Exodus, uh, here's where we are. So uh, the Israelites have been in Egypt, and they've been turned into slaves. There's an evil pharaoh in power now, and he wants to keep them suppressed. He wants to keep them controlled. He's going to put them to work, and he's going to be harsh with God's people. So God sends Moses uh, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh says, no, no, no. And then sometimes he says, okay, I will. And then he backs out on it. And God has had enough. And he sent a series of plagues to punish and convince Pharaoh that he needs to listen to God. Pharaoh again um, denies what God is asking of him. And the final plague is, is really horrible. It results in the death of the firstborn son of every, uh, every man and beast in Egypt, except for the ones that have the blood of the lamb above their doorpost. So let's read 12, 1 through 14 of Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The, Lord, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. All right, so for centuries, the Israelites did what they were supposed to do and kept this Passover meal, this holiday, in remembrance of what God did in setting them free from Egypt, but also in foreshadowing the Savior to come. And Jesus connects himself to this. He links his chain to that Passover and says, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm what's coming next. I'm starting something new grafted off of that ceremony. So then Luke 22, 7 through 23. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So think about this. Jesus is going to the cross during the Passover season. Right, that planning, that coordination could not be more perfect. We have to catch these parallels. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, until the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. All right, then verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. All right, so stop right there. Uh, we're going to pause with the, with, with the comparison between communion and Passover, and we're going to circle back to that at the end, okay? But I needed to get your minds going so you can start thinking about those parallels between the two things that are happening here. Uh, for now, just think about that. Think about how Jesus is working to kind of link his chain to the Passover and how he's identifying himself as the fulfillment of this thing that they have been celebrating and remembering for so many years. So we're going to keep moving and come back. So 24 through 30. So just as Jesus is explaining all of this, so in the midst of this moment in redemptive history where Jesus is explaining there's a new covenant coming, 
Right? I'm here to establish that for you. In the midst of that, the disciples couldn't help but let the pride creep in. Even in that moment, there's this pride that seeps in where they start to argue about who is the greatest. Well, it's definitely me. I'm not the betrayer. Like, obviously it's not. It's probably him, right? He's like, it's not me. I'm definitely the greatest. You're not the greatest. And so goes the conversation. Completely missing what Jesus is establishing. It's tragic to a degree. And then in 31 through 34, uh, Jesus predicts that, that Peter is going to deny him. I think most of us are probably familiar with this story, but Jesus says that Satan wanted to sift his disciples. So he's talking, he's using imagery of like farming with wheat and chafe and kind of separating the two out. So he's basically saying like he wanted to throw them in the air. He wanted to knock them off balance. He wanted to scatter them in the wind. And of course, Peter responds confidently. Right? Like, absolutely not. That's not going to happen. I'm with you till you die. I'm with you till I die. Whatever comes first, Jesus, I'm there with you. And he's really confident in his answer in that moment, but the trial hasn't come yet. And I think that it's a, a good reminder for us that it's easy to have the theological answer or the ethical answer in a given situation. But when that reality is staring you in the face, that's when rubber meets the road. And we'll see that that happens with Peter as we continue on. A.W. Tozer even said that you can be straight as a gun barrel theologically and as empty as one spiritually. So it's easy to have the right answer. If the knowledge of your mind does not coincide with the renewing of the heart, you will face trials like Peter did. Like Peter was about to. You'll face them in the same way, right? Really big talk up front, and when it's there, you crumble. The heart has to be transformed to match the right answers of the mind. Verses 35 through 38. Um, so the disciples, they've already been sent on some missionary journeys. They've already been uh, told to go and preach the gospel, and they've done miracles. Jesus has sent them out before, but this time is different, and Jesus is preparing them for that. This time, they're going out farther. They're staying out longer. They're going to be planting churches in the near future. This journey is different. It's going to be more dangerous and this time he does, he prepares them. Um, he, he has them plan and, and be practical and prepare and put together um, a guide for them. But the temptation is always going to be there for us to put our trust in those preparations, right? Or in those things. And I'm sure that there's an endless list of things that we could list that people put their uh, trust in. But just to go along with the theme here, so swords, right? Weapons to defend ourselves. That's a very basic one. Uh, food supplies, bank accounts, insurance policies, governments, careers, social political movements, friends, family, what have you. Any one of those things, it can be very easy to even maybe subconsciously begin to place our trust and our faith and the security of our future in those things and not in Jesus. So Jesus is sending them out knowing that they're going to face horrible trials. Right? They don't, the disciples we know don't live easy lives from this point on. But really, we're in no greater danger than the moment that we take our eyes off of Jesus as the one who secures our future. So Jesus sends them with provision and supplies. Right? But he's the one that guarantees the work will be done. He's the one that guarantees what they're going to face will not be wasted. So they're going to suffer. From church history, we know that they all suffered. And we're pretty sure that all of them died from martyrdom, maybe except John. But we know John was enslaved at least at one point. 
and, and working in a mine, even maybe as an old man. And so they all suffered. But what it means is that they trusted the one who determined that they would suffer. The one who determined that they would suffer in the future, who planned this out, also loved them and was not going to let their suffering be meaningless. That's what would be the tragedy, is if the suffering would be meaningless, but it wasn't. They go out and they plant churches and they, sh they share the gospel and they preach and they proclaim and they baptize. And it's because of that work that we're here this morning. We're evidence that this wasn't meaningless, even though they go out and they suffer and Jesus is trying to prepare them for that in this moment. Verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you do not enter into temptation. So we get this really intimate look at where Jesus was at. Um, in these moments leading up to the crucifixion. He knows what's going on. He's God, right? He knows it's coming. He, he knows the full scope of what he's about to endure, but at the same time, he's fully man, and so he's, he doesn't want to do that, right? The pain is staring him in the face, the suffering that he's going to go through, and he says, Father, if there's any other way for us to do this, where I don't have to go to this cross, where I don't have to go through this suffering, but we still get to redeem them, let's do that, and the Father says there's, there's not any other way. This is what must be done. And so an angel comes and is comforting him, right? ministering to him. He's in such distress. It says that he's sweating blood as he's praying. And yet, as that storm is raging around him, he is faithful and says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And twice he gives the disciples this warning to pray that they won't fall into temptation. Twice he gives this warning. And so here, once again, the beauty of Jesus and his faithfulness is just magnified. Right? Contrasted against the sin that is surrounding him and the sin that he's about to pay for with his own life. And this is, this is good evidence that Jesus is no victim of cosmic child abuse or some weird form of the atonement that some people would like to put out there. That Jesus is a willing Savior who loves his people and goes to the cross out of love, not because he's compelled to. He remains faithful to us to bring it home once again. We're the evidence that the disciples' suffering wasn't in vain, and he was also thinking about us and being faithful to the future Christians that would come. So this is for you as a Christian. This is for me as a Christian that he remained faithful. In 47 through 53, Jesus is arrested. It says, while, we were, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? 
This is definitely Peter talking. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That was Peter. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And when Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against Come out as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So the greatest of atrocities has begun. They've shown up thinking we're going to murder Jesus. He's gotten in the way enough. But, but at the beginning in verse 47, there's just this extra sting that Luke makes sure to put in there. It says... And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Judas was one of the twelve, meaning the inner circle, the closest that it could possibly be to Jesus. He's, Jesus is still calling Judas friend at this point in other Gospels. Judas comes to give him a kiss. We see Jesus again in willing submission to the Father's plan, handing himself over to be crucified for us. Remember, he's also fully God. Right? While he has people willing to fight for him with swords, he doesn't need that. He could set himself free. He could disappear. He could show up somewhere else in this moment, and he doesn't. He willingly hands himself to this crowd to be crucified for us. But we also see in this moment that Jesus has this love that shines through that is so uh, different than, than I could possibly imagine myself loving someone. This guy has, is part of an angry mob. Like, think pitchforks and, and uh, torches, right? And they show up, they're angry, they're going to murder him, they're going to nail him to a cross after beating him. Someone cuts off one of the guy's ears, and Jesus cares enough to fix the ear. I don't know about you, but if someone showed up to murder me and they get an owie, like, I'm not going to worry about that ear. That's not at the top of my priority list. But Jesus loves in that way where even the ones that have come to kill him are receiving some element of benefit from his love. It's incredible. Jesus is calm and fearless in the storm because he knows and trusts the Father. And the disciples, still trusting in the sword instead of the Savior, is a reminder to all of us that keeping our trust in the right place, it's not just a one-time event, but it has to be a perpetual rhythm of our lives. Right? So yesterday, I trusted God. Today, my feelings are fleeting. Right? My heart can't be trusted every day. I have to be cultivating that trust in the Lord. I have to be cultivating that. And that comes back to spending time in his word and looking at his promises for me and for the future, looking back on examples of his faithfulness in the past. And those are what are going to water and fertilize the trust and the faith that I have in Christ. But if we let that go, just like a garden, it becomes full of weeds and things stop growing and becomes desolate and all of a sudden our trust and our faith are gone. So one moment, the disciples trusted God to provide for them as they go on these journeys. The next moment, they're lopping people's ears off because they don't know what's going on. Right? They're shaking. So 54 through 62, um, Jesus is seized and led away. And we're about to see that Jesus' prediction that, that um, Peter would deny him actually happens. Peter follows at a distance, but people start to recognize him. 
And which makes sense, right? Because he's been everywhere with Jesus for years leading up to this point. People are like, wait, weren't you with him? Uh, didn't I see you over there? Aren't you associated with those guys? Three times, just like Jesus predicted, uh, people asked Peter, aren't you associated with Jesus in some way? And three times he denies. And on that third time, just like Jesus predicted, the rooster crows, surely as a sign to Peter of what is just Happen. And also in that moment, it says that Jesus looked at Peter. I'm assuming they made eye contact in that moment. And I can't help but think about just the piercing feeling, that sinking feeling that Peter would have had. Where he remembers just moments ago being in the garden and falling asleep when Jesus was pleading with him to remember to pray that he wouldn't fall into temptation. And for Christians, I think it's easy for us to kind of have that list of things we pray about to not fall into, right? Like lust, pride, hatred, you know, those big ones that we think about. Uh, but here, I think Jesus was talking about to not fall into the temptation to fear men over God. And maybe Peter had that list where he's like, I'm good. I pray about these things all the time. I'm going to take a nap right now. And when he should have been praying, when Jesus made it very clear to him that that was his task in the moment. <clears throat> 63 through 65. Um, Jesus is beaten and mocked by guards. And I'll be honest with you, up until recently, for some reason I had it in my head that those guards were Romans. But they're not Romans, they're Jewish guards. Which kind of changed things in my mind a little bit because if they're Roman guards, they have no like sentimental attachment to who this person might be, right? That they're beating and they're mocking. They're like, it's just another religious group that we're in charge of making sure they don't get out of hand. But if it's Jewish guards, then these guards are part of the chosen people that God redeemed out of Egypt, right? They would be celebrating the Passover, they would have grown up listening to rabbis. They would have grown up memorizing Old Testament scripture. They should know who this person is right in front of them, and they don't. I can't imagine beating Jesus, making fun of Jesus. And it's easy to look at these guards and think, how could someone be so vile in that moment? But at the same time, the, the guards that beat and mocked Jesus, were, they were not extra evil. They're not an anomaly in human history. They're all of us apart from grace. Apart from, from salvation in Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we all have the capacity to beat and mock someone and enjoy it in the moment. That's what is separating us from everything else is the work of Jesus. What we're going to see next week, that sanctifying work of the Spirit um, that does set us apart, that does cause us to have broken hearts over sin and grieve over things like Jesus getting beaten, um, that is a good process always, but it's also a painful process often. A good process always, but a painful process often. As the Holy Spirit is working in your life and on your heart, and you start to have your eyes open because sin is being removed, and you start to see places where you have hurt people, where you have mocked people or beaten people, and you go and you have to ask for that forgiveness, that is good and painful. It made me think of when I was a kid and I, I fell um, off this stack of hay and I broke my arm, and 
uh, I had to go to the hospital, and they had to set the bone so that it could heal properly. And the setting of that bone hurt so much more than breaking it initially. But that had to happen in order for it to heal. So the pain was good for the healing that it brought about. Other examples that we see in Scripture, um, like the Holy Spirit is pruning back the vine, right? Cutting away things. Cutting is generally painful, but it's good for the health of the vine. So sin is an atrocity, but Jesus is faithful to restore all things. All right. Jesus proclaims his identity in 2266 through 71. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So Paul Tripp, in a book that I read by him, he wrote that sin makes us spiritually blind. Sin makes us spiritually blind. So our consciences become seared, we become calloused, and our spiritual eyes begin to close when sin in our life goes unchallenged and unchecked. We become unhealthy at best spiritually. And this is exactly the problem that the religious leaders have. They're blinded by their sins of greed and power and desire to have the people's attention on them and to be doted on. So where they should see beauty, they see a threat. And where they should worship, they scorn. Where they should tremble, they laugh and mock. Where they should cry out for mercy, they see themselves as righteous. But even in the midst of the greatest evil that is ever done, God's plan is being worked out, and Jesus, again, is faithful in this moment. The religious leaders think they're about to get rid of Jesus. All of their problems are about to go away, but they don't understand that through the cross, death is defeated and Jesus' kingship is fully established on the earth. They don't realize that trying to carry out their plans is making them just pawns in the hands of the king. Then we get to chapter 23. It says, when the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. 
For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So even in this moment, uh, Pilate is trying to be somewhat merciful to Jesus. He's like, he's not guilty of the things these people are accusing him of, but he can also tell that these people are not going to be satisfied until something is done. So he's thinking, maybe if I just give him a good beating and turn him loose, they'll leave him alone and Jesus gets to live and that everybody's happy to some degree in that way. But what we're witnessing really is the worst miscarriage of justice by any human court in the history of the world. Jesus is being lied about, misrepresented, and framed as a political challenger to Caesar. So even in Pilate's official capacity, he has deemed him innocent. And yet, Jesus is about to go die. The only man who ever lived a perfect moral life, who never sinned to any degree... That is the pinnacle of injustice. 23, starting in verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release us to Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection. Do you see the irony? <laughs> right? They're, they're saying Jesus is trying to start an insurrection, so he needs to be crucified. Release to us the insurrectionist. I mean, Pilate's head is spinning. He knows this doesn't make sense, but he has an angry mob at his front door. Barabbas was also wanted for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So incredibly, while evil men were conducting this sham of a trial that just reeks of injustice, God is also at work working out perfect justice. Again, the paradox that we find here. Jesus wasn't going to die for any sin that he had committed. He was going to die for the sins of his people that had to be paid for. They had to be paid for in some way. Jesus was the only one that could... They could satisfy that debt against the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus stood in our place, hung in our place on the cross, so that we could stand in his place before the Father on Judgment Day. You see the exchange that's happening here, the Passover lamb. That's where we're going to end in Luke for this morning. Okay, we have to stop there. I would love to keep going. We've got to save that for next week for Pastor Brian. Um, but like I said, this will bring us back to where we started. 
back to the idea of the Passover lamb and communion and what Jesus is instituting. At the beginning, I asked you guys to think about the parallels between those two things, right? The Passover lamb and Jesus. So the lamb's body was broken for God's people. So was the body of Jesus. The lamb's blood was spilled as a sign that sins were forgiven, and Jesus' blood was spilled to actually forgive the sins. The lamb had to be without blemish or imperfection. Jesus was absolutely sinless and had no imperfection. In John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he cries out, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a man whose eyes are open. That's a man who can recognize who is standing in front of him, and he instantly sees the connection to what has been foreshadowed and what is happening now. So the Passover is by faith anticipating what Jesus would do, and communion is remembering in faith what Jesus did. Jesus has just endured beating, mocking, abandonment, and an unjust trial. And next week, here at Cornerstone, We'll see how he becomes the anticipated lamb of God by breaking his body and shedding of his blood to pay for your sins and for mine. And I've tried to make it clear that this isn't just historical facts this morning, but this is something that comes home for all of us individually. We have decisions to make based on what happened thousands of years ago. Is Jesus our sacrificial lamb? Are we willing to place our faith in him as being the payment for our own sins? That's a question you have to answer for yourself. I wanted to end this morning uh, just by reading uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer 75. It's a question, how does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? The answer... Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Secondly, As surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. So surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. And that's the new covenant that Jesus establishes. And that is the uh, Lord's Supper or communion or whatever you want to call it that he establishes so that we remember these things. They're a tangible, physical example and reminder to us of what he accomplished. As um, the, the wine and the bread nourish and sustain us, so his work on the, cross, on the cross spiritually nourishes and sustains and revives our souls. So this week I pray that your souls are sustained when you remember the depths of love that Jesus has for you to withstand that storm, to be the Passover sacrifice, and to go to the cross on your behalf. Let's pray.
Father, if there's people in this room right now that have never known Jesus as their Savior, I pray that today is the day. I pray that if they've been dependent on their proximity to Christian things, that that would no longer satisfy them. That they would have a longing in their heart and in their soul for the satisfaction that only comes from your son and his work on the cross. Thank you again for leaving us this gospel, providing for us a means of, of confidence in our faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.